How's everybody doing? All right. Anybody tired? Yeah, my people. Yeah. Right on. If you are tired, that's okay. I know this is a moment in the year between end of semesters for students and teachers and professors and families and all the turnaround that might have you a little bit tired. That's okay. You can bring your tired here today, okay? Uh, if, as a church, we feel a little tired, I'd say that's okay too. I just want to call this out real quick. In the last few weeks, we had a big Idea Week event here in the room. We woke up the next day to get the news that our beloved mayor had decided to move his national campaign event next door. So we did Palm Sunday, and this church clawed their way through the crowds and the rain and the trolleys and made it here to celebrate Palm Sunday. And then we had Holy Thursday, which was really beautiful and profound. And then we had Easter. And uh, we're not the kind of church that... Uh, finds that the quantity is where the, the beauty is. It's more about quality for us. But I will say, if you're a volunteer who makes anything happen around here, maybe you serve families and children or you make coffee or you've been out there in the parking lot or you've been up here on the stage or you've moved chairs or you've greeted people or whatever, I want you to know that if you're tired, there's probably a reason for that. <laughs> Last week, we had 1,100 people here, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, and I, just, I say that just to say thank you to people who work really hard and make things happen around here. And if you're a little worn out, I see you. We're in this together, all right? Today we're going to turn the page after a beautiful and challenging Lent and a hopeful Easter. We're going to turn the page to a new text in the scriptures and some new ideas, and I'm so excited. Late in the first century, in what is modern-day Turkey, there's a smallish city. And this city had enjoyed some economic and cultural prominence just a few decades earlier because a few decades earlier, industry was flourishing there, especially wool and textiles. But after flourishing economically, those industries began to fall down. And the moment I'm taking you to in the life of that smallish city, realized that it seemed like in some ways their best days economically were behind them and they were trying to figure out how things were going to move forward for them. There's an ancient source that describes the climate in this city at the time that I'm talking about. And the source says this, it was exposed to grim winters, lovely springs, and hot summers. Now, I gotta say the lovely spring thing worked better on Thursday than it's working today with the frost that we got late April. And in this smallish city with a thriving industrial past, trying to figure out its current economic moment, where there were grim winters and lovely springs and hot summers, there is a new church that was budding up that was growing fresh and new. And this new church was trying to especially figure out what it meant for resurrection to be a lived reality for them. In fact, one of their teachers had said this to them, you've been raised with Christ. The resurrection of Christ isn't just for him, it's for you. So we thought, huh, if there's a city with a, an industrial past and a current difficult economic moment where the winters are grim and the springs are lovely and there's a small church there that's wrestling with what resurrection means, that might be a community we could relate to, right? And there might be a text written to this community that we could learn something from. In fact, there is. The city I'm talking about is Colossae or Colossae, depending on how you pronounce it. And the church there had a letter written to it that's in the New Testament in the scriptures. The letter is called Colossians. We're going to spend some time in Colossians. We're going to do a little work on this brief little letter in the New Testament. This is where we're going to go for the next few weeks. 
Uh, now, by the way, saying that, I would encourage you, like, don't take my word for it the next three weeks. It's a short little letter in the Bible. You can totally read this thing. Take some time, read it for yourself. If you want to take a Bible home, we've got three Bibles for you on the back shelf right over there. They're helpful. They've got some study notes. If you're the kind of person like me who sometimes feels a little bit lost in the Bible, there's great little notes to kind of help you find your bearings as you go. And I would love to encourage you, maybe read it once a week for the next three weeks. It'll take no time at all. And then you'll walk in here like a little more sort of aware of what we're talking about, right? But we're going to do some work on the letter to the Colossians. And I do mean some work. You guys up for doing a little bit of work with me today? Yeah? yeah? A few of you are there? The rest of you? I mean, you can leave, I guess. Um, great. We're going to do a little bit of work. Now, there's a couple of questions about the letter to the Colossians that even today scholars are wrestling with. If you do what I did and you go to Notre Dame Library to the 12th floor and you pull every commentary off the shelf on Colossians, which is like lots of them, you'll find out like a lot of these scholars are wrestling with the same two big questions. The first one that we're not going to go very far into is whether Paul actually wrote it. So if you read the first sentence of the book of Colossians, it says Paul wrote this letter, right? And it seems like a lot of people would assume that that means Paul wrote it. And a lot of scholars say Paul did write it, but a lot of other scholars wonder whether that's really the case. Two big reasons that somebody might question that. First of all, we have a lot of other letters from Paul in the New Testament, and so we can learn Paul's vocabulary. Everybody has their own vocabulary, right? Their own, the words they use, the ways that they talk. And if you hear somebody talking in a way that doesn't sound like you're used to hearing, then that might raise some questions, right? Well, in the letter of the Colossians, there's something like 43, 44 words that show up in that letter that Paul doesn't use anywhere else. And there's other words that Paul uses in every other letter that we know that Paul wrote that never show up in the letter to the Colossians. So that, that seems to ring some bells for people. And beyond the words, there's the ideas that the words point to. And it seems that the letter to the Colossians is, is a writer who has some different ideas, not necessarily contradictory to the ideas in the other letters, but some different ideas at the center of his or her thoughts about God and about Jesus. And so for those reasons, scholars wrestle with whether Paul really wrote that. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, if Paul didn't write it, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what are we, is that is it make it a fraud? Well, the thing is, in the first century, it would be really common for a person to write a letter in the name of their teacher or in the name of a, of a publicly respected thinker who they are trying to honor with the thing that they are doing. So let's say Paul didn't write the letter, and let's say the church at Colossae found out that Paul didn't write the letter. It's likely that they wouldn't be scandalized by that or afraid of that. They would probably say, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's part of how we do letters in the first century. That's okay. Now, it doesn't really matter for what we're going to do with Colossians, whether Paul wrote it or not. I just share that with you because we try to be the kind of community that puts the big questions on the table and lets you sort of understand the way that different thinkers are wrestling with these things. And that's one of the big questions that's on the table about this letter. Again, that one doesn't matter so much for where we're going, but the next question does. The next question that scholars wrestle with is, why was this letter written? What provoked this? What is it that caused Paul or somebody like Paul to, to undergo the task of writing a letter? Now, maybe you think that doesn't seem like a very big deal, but that's because you live in the age of text messages and DMs and email and social media and firing messages off to one another around the corner or around the world is like nothing for us, right? In fact, maybe, maybe it needs to be a little harder than it is right now. <laughs> Some of you woke up in the morning, you checked your phone, and you thought, oh no, did I send that? Well, in the first century, you know who you are. In the first century, 
And the first century letter writing is a real undertaking. It might involve having a secretary, like an employee almost, who does the writing with you. Uh, the materials of writing are less readily available in the first century. And then sending that letter across the ancient world from wherever you are to wherever it's got to go is, is a challenge, right? It costs money and you've got to have somebody who's actually making the difficult trip from where you are to where it's going to go. So when a letter is written, it probably means there's a reason for it, right? And, and more importantly, it seems that if we could understand the reason behind the letter, we'll have a better chance of understanding the message of the letter. So scholars work with one another to try to figure out both from clues in the book of Colossians and from knowledge about the world around the Colossians, scholars try to work out why was this letter written? What is it that provoked it? Now I want to take you into some of the clues and today we're going to work out a little bit of why this letter might have been written because I think the more we pay attention to it, the more we're going to relate to it, okay? Let me take you to a place where we, we sense that the writer is motivated by something going on with the church in Colossae. This is chapter 2, verse 8. See to it then that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Well, it seems like a fair guess that that wouldn't be written unless the people at Colossae are in danger of being taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It seems like a fair sort of gambit as we work with the text, right? Well, let's, let's play with this uh, for a little bit. Uh, maybe that sounds a little abstract or academic to you, but let's just pull these phrases out. Next slide. So there's a warning about a hollow and deceptive philosophy. You might be deceived by this philosophy. There's a warning about human tradition. And there's a warning about this world, things of this world. And the writer seems to be saying that whatever's going on, whatever temptation your community is facing, whatever threat there is to your church, to your life in God, this is some of the nature of that threat. It's hollow and deceptive, it's rooted in human tradition, and it's all about this world. Now, sometimes what I like to do when I'm working on a biblical text, just so I can really feel the effect of the text, is I'll pause, and I'll observe sort of a moment, and then I'll ask myself, where do I think this is going to go? Like, as if like, you're reading a story, and you get to a, a circumstance in the story, and you just ask yourself, based on what I know of the circumstance, where would I think that this is about to go? Because that'll help me sometimes be surprised or hear uh, with better ears where the text actually takes things. Make sense? So let's do a little exercise here. If you have ever had Christians warn you that you are being deceived or that you are deceiving people, if you've ever had Christians warn you that the philosophy that you are believing in or behaving according to is bad, if you've ever had Christians warn you that you're a part of human tradition which is bad as opposed to Christian tradition which is good, if you've ever had Christians warn you or if you've ever seen them warn other people, or maybe you've been on Twitter for more than a minute, where all the angry Christians are, right? If you've ever seen Christians warn other people about like this world and being a part of this world, here's the question. What kinds of beliefs or behaviors do you usually see these warnings referring to? What, what kinds of beliefs or behaviors do you usually see these kinds of warnings referring to? Maybe this has happened to you. Maybe you've seen it with other people. Let's do a little open floor. Talk to me. Anybody, anybody want to name a belief or a behavior they've heard referred to? Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, uh, Stevens is treading lightly. Uh, Stevens said, I believe it was in the news that a prominent pastor told an upcoming, up and coming politician to repent of his lifestyle. Let the reader or the hearer understand. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. What else? Yeah. Nice. Watch out for those godless scientists. Yeah, watch out for their science. It'll take you away from faith. Yeah. Yeah, what else? Dating non-Christians. Dating non-Christians. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. What else? Yeah. Women cannot hold office. Women shouldn't be leading. That's no elders beyond the councils. They can teach Sunday school. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. And they can sing, okay. And, and so let me just make sure I'm drawing that out right. And you're saying that when it's suggested that women can lead and teach and do all those things, that that's deceptive or worldly, right? That's what you've heard or seen? Yeah, okay. What else? Social justice. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so any effort that would take like Christian faith toward social economic reparations, putting things back together, that kind of social justice stuff, that's been described as worldly or deceptive? Yeah. What else? Yeah. Prosperity gospel. Yeah, you want to say a little more about that? Like it's just, like it's just a little selective reading of the words of Christ and not taking in the whole? Picking out what you want. Yeah. Right on. Thanks, Bo. What else? Yeah. Uh, working Interesting. Working in business or academia or some field that's not directly related to the church and like missions in the world. Yeah, that's been called worldly or bad, right? Yeah, thanks. What else? Yeah. Uh, accepting and allowing other religions. Accepting or allowing other religions. Yeah, what else? Tattoos and television. <laughs> Worldly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yep. Yeah. Just anything on the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture that's not strictly like, perfect and... Right on, yeah. Any, anything about Scripture where we're talking about whether it's inerrant or infallible, if it's not pegging the needle on some of those categories that can be called deceptive or dangerous? Yeah, thanks, Bob. Slippery slope. Slippery slope, yeah. A lot of energy in the room around this. Interesting. <laughs> okay. That's a great sample. Let's, let's sort of, let's hold on to that. I think that's really helpful. Um, I, I know I've, I resonate with pretty much everything that was said. I, I've also seen those things described as deceptive or worldly, and I've even uh, had some of that directed at me uh, as a personal level and in my role sometimes, right? I'm not necessarily judging all those, all those ideas, but I just want to observe that this kind of language, uh, we, we named a bunch of things that are the kinds of behaviors and beliefs that we hear Christians warning one another about, Let's just ask, is that what the letter's concerned about? When the letter warns you about deceptive philosophies and human traditions and the things of this world, well, where does the letter go with that? What is it concerned about? Now, um, again, we're trying to construct what is it that provoked this letter to be written? We got a little hint of it there. I'm gonna go further into the text and show you more of the ways that the text seems to be concerned about this worldly, deceptive philosophy. And then I'm gonna to turn to some scholars that have sort of put a picture together based on some of the clues, okay? Let me show you some more of the clues first. This is a little later in the letter. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. 
So apparently judging people for what they eat or drink is worldly. Or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. So apparently judging people based on whether they participate in these kinds of things is worldly. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And let's go a little further to verse 20. Why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are worldly rules, according to this writer. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They look really good with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any real value in restraining sensual indulgence. Interesting, right? So these are some of the clues that scholars work with as they try to put a picture together of what is the provocation, what's the problem, what's the threat to the church? What is it that's going to keep them from knowing resurrection life in their midst? The writer says it has something to do with hollow and deceptive philosophies and worldliness, and then he goes on to begin to describe some of the features of that deceptive philosophy and worldliness, and it's interesting. It, it doesn't sound like the things that we all just described, does it? In fact, it almost... Some of it almost sounds like the opposite of what we described. Let me go a little further. So there's a New Testament scholar named Scott McKnight, and McKnight in his commentary on this text, he basically gathers up the consensus of all the scholars, and he says most of the smart people working on the book of Colossians who are trying to figure out what is the threat to this community and the life of God in their midst, what is the threat? He says there's basically four big options, and some of these overlap and interconnect. These are the four sort of big options. Possibilities for the bad teachers teaching the bad things. They could have been Judaizers. They could have been dualizers. They could have been Gnostics. They could have been ascetics. Got it? <laughs> Let's work this out a little bit, okay? I'm not just trying to throw big words at us just for the heck of it, but like, I think this will help us work this out. It could have been Judaizers. One of the concerns in the New Testament is that there are people who are trying to claw the Christian movement back to its Jewish roots. And so, for example, if I stood up here today on our stage and I said, well, don't you know, in order to be part of the people of God, you've got to be circumcised? That's sort of classic Judaizing in the first century in the church, right? So that's the Judaizers. They're trying to sort of reassert the Jewish nature of the way of being in the world on the Christian church, right? Okay, that's the Judaizers. Then we have the dualizers, which is a word I made up. Uh, because there's a longer phrase there, but McKnight says something like people who are preaching dualism, and uh, a quick sort of read on dualism is basically to say there's God in, in spirit, and that stuff's good, right? And then there's matter, there's flesh and blood, there's bodies, there's planet Earth, and that's bad. And these two worlds don't really work together and they're not very compatible, so that's duality, right? There's the one and the other, and never the two shall meet, the dualizers. Then you have the Gnostics, which is sort of like the dualizers. The Gnostics built up this system of religion and belief then. Be these are behaviors and beliefs, right? Uh, if, you, if you believe that God and spirit is good and matter and flesh and blood is bad, then you've got to figure out like, how are you going to get out of the bad and into the good, right? And if you're a Gnostic, you don't believe that God has taken it upon God's self to come our direction, so you've got to figure out how to go God's direction. Quick side note, a lot of scholars agree that Gnosticism developed more robustly in the second century than the first, and so full-blooded Gnosticism may not really be what's going on here, but there's sort of a general movement in that direction. The last is the ascetics. Asceticism, uh, at a really sort of basic description level, is when you think that the more you abstain from the holier you are. 
Just can you, the more you abstain from, the holier you are. That's sort of a quick read on asceticism. But like, so for example, if tonight I have the choice between a six-course dinner or beans and rice, the ascetic would choose the beans and rice. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way. There might be really good reasons to do that. But ascetics seem to think that like uh, pleasure and desire and grandiose living, these are all bad things. And the more you can get away from those things, the better off you are. So it might be the Judaizers, it might be the dualizers, it might be the Gnostics, it might be the ascetics. I don't think it matters if you walk out, out of here today holding on to those terms, okay? But just notice that there's a thread woven through all of those possibilities. And here, I think, is where this letter is going to start talking to us, okay? There's a thread woven through all this. This is the way I'm trying to describe the thread. Next slide. You've got to jump through some hoops to get to God because God doesn't really want anything to do with this flesh and blood material world. Make sense? For the Judaizers, the hoops that you've got to jump through are the Torah, the law of Moses, with all of its restrictions, right? Uh, for the ascetics or for the dualizers, it's that your, your body is bad, flesh and blood is bad, matter is bad, and so you need to adopt beliefs and behaviors that help you sort of escape this embodied life that we live so that you can get to the pure sort of life in God that's afraid of flesh and blood and bodies and dirt and earth. That seems to be the big threat that's going on here, uh, that you've got to get to God by jumping through some hoops. Anybody tracking with me so far? Okay, yeah, right? Now, um, how does the writer deal with that then? How does the writer make his or her case that you shouldn't have to jump through hoops to get to God? How does the writer say, that is not what we are about? Well, the writer in Colossians 1 tells the story of Jesus, just like lays it on thick with the gospel. But it's important to observe what, what they do with this gospel and why it matters for a church that's tempted to believe all of these lies. The writer in chapter 1 tells the story of Jesus. But rather than telling the story in a sort of uh, concrete, everyday way, the writer tells the story of Jesus in a cosmic way to help you sort of get your, your grip on the fact that in the life of Jesus, this cosmic, eternal, transcendent thing was happening. So it, the writer uses that language to describe the greater importance of what was happening in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is a common trick with language, right? You can describe events at the ground floor level or at the more cosmic level. For a cheap example, say you're a sports writer in the 1920s writing about Notre Dame football in the city of New York. And say that you see Notre Dame football just provide an impressive performance against Army. Well, you could write the story for your newspaper with what plays they ran and how those tactics on the field played out, or you could do this. Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, their names are death, destruction, pestilence, and famine, but those are aliases. Their real names are, and I don't know how to pronounce this one, Stoldrer, Crowley, Miller, and Layden. They formed the crest of the South Bend Cyclone, before which another fighting army team was swept over the precipice at the polo grounds this afternoon as 55,000 spectators peered down upon the bewildering panorama spread out upon the green plain below. Hallelujah, amen. <laughs> Here come the Irish, right? Uh, that's the actual writing from a journalist in New York writing about that game. Maybe you've heard of the Four Horsemen in Notre Dame football. This is where that comes from. Uh, obviously, it's a football game, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a moment in time in history where a thing happened on the field, but the writer used big cosmic language to describe the meaning of that. That's a kind of trite, trivial example, right? I get that. 
But this is what language can do. Language can help us realize that in an everyday package, something cosmic or really important is going on, and that's what the writer does in Colossians when she or he narrates the story of Jesus like this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Feel how big that is? You can just sense the writers looking for the biggest language they can find to describe what happened when God lived God's life through the life of Jesus on planet Earth. I think the big idea here is if you have been told that God is afraid of flesh and blood and matter, and because God is afraid of flesh and blood and matter, then you've got to jump through a bunch of hoops to get to God because God's not really coming to you. If you've been told that, his answer is, don't you know that in Jesus, God married flesh and blood and matter? Like, it's not just that God could tolerate it. God came fully dwelling in it. In other words, if you've heard something that called itself the gospel and it was preaching about the scarcity of God, it's not gospel, I don't care what they call it. When gospel's preached, you hear about the rampant availability of God. When gospel's preached, you find out that because God lived through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you find out that your life, your body, your home, your work, the dirt that you put your hands into, every inch of your world and every moment of your life, these are venues for the activity of God. So, so you don't have to play along with beliefs or behaviors that narrow the gateway on God. Actually, the gospel is proclaiming the rampant availability of God because God loves this world so much that God lived God's life through a body. All of that, all that cosmic, eternal, transcendent language, the fullness of God, dwell in him so that all things could be reconciled. And so this writer says, when people convince you that you gotta jump through hoops to get God. He says, that's worldly. That's hollow and deceptive and dangerous. And I wanna take you back to the Jesus story, to the Christ experience to remind you that is not our gospel. And some of those things might have the appearance of holiness, but there's nothing holy about jumping through hoops to get to a God who has already given God's self to you. Now does this mean live however you want, do whatever you want? No. <laughs> Later in the letter, we'll work some of that out. The, the writer is very clear. There's a way of living in the world which is in harmony with this, with this gospel. And there are ways of living in the world which aren't. He's really clear about that. But the starting point is gospel means that every minute of your life, every inch of your world, your body, the world that you walk around in is actually the venue that God has given God's self to, the world that God is filling up with God's presence. So wake up to that, and then you'll be on your way to holy. Now, I know that in the year 2019, we, we may not have people walking around describing themselves as Judaizers or dualizers or Gnostics or ascetics. That may not be a common thing. But surely it's still a temptation today 
to preach the scarcity of God and to talk about beliefs and behaviors that make you jump through hoops to get to a God who's already given God's self to you. There's a writer named Brennan Manning uh, who really marked my life. Brennan uh, was a Catholic priest who by his own description lived kind of a failed Catholic life and yet he just writes so beautifully and compellingly about the gospel. And one of his books is called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And at the beginning of that book, he writes this. On a blustery October night in a church outside Minneapolis, several hundred believers had gathered for a three-day seminar. And I began with a one-hour presentation on the gospel of grace and the reality of salvation. Using scripture, story, symbolism, and personal experience, I focused on the total sufficiency of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. The service ended with a song and a prayer. Leaving church by the side door, the pastor turned to his associate and fumed. <laughs> that airhead didn't say one thing about what we have to do to earn our salvation. Something's radically wrong. The bending of the mind by the powers of this world has twisted the gospel of grace into religious bondage and distorted the image of God into an eternal, small-minded bookkeeper. The Christian community resembles a Wall Street exchange of works wherein the elite are honored and the ordinary ignored. Love is stifled, freedom shackled, and self-righteousness fastened. The institutional church has become a wounder of the healers rather than a healer of the wounded. And put bluntly, the American church today accepts grace in theory but denies it in practice. We say we believe that the fundamental structure of reality is grace, not works, but our lives refute our faith. By and large, the gospel of grace is neither proclaimed, understood, nor lived. Too many Christians are living in the house of fear and not in the house of love. And it turns out to the, those, those preachers of hollow and deceptive philosophies and the ones who are making you afraid, telling you that your beliefs and behaviors have to line up with a God who is hard to get to so you better fight for it on your own. And the writer says the answer to all of that, the way that we fix that is remembering the Christ event, which is the fullness of God given to life in a body and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus somehow given to us. So the next couple of weeks we'll ask more questions from this letter about what does it mean to live in harmony with that gift, with that fullness, not having to earn anything, not having to take anything. What does it mean to live in harmony uh, with the gift that God has given. Uh, we wanted to um, make that text from Colossians our prayer today. And so Dan and some of those are gonna come back up and lead us in that. Colossians 1.15, many scholars think it, it, ha it has the tone of a hymn or a poem in the original Greek. And so we will not be the first uh, Jesus community in the last 2,000 years to make Colossians 1 a prayer for us. But we wanna be a part of that uh, practice today. And so if you're able, will you stand to your feet? And that scripture and a song, we will make our closing meditation before we go. Let's sing all praises, and then we'll read this passage together. All praises to the The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For 
in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, if you weren't here last week or you didn't get one, uh, we got mugs. Uh, you're welcome to take one. And they have little mantra cards inside. We just didn't want you to miss out. Um, today is the last day to sign up for the World Vision 6K, which is not the belly burst. Uh, details uh, are with Morgan at the table right out there, but we'd love to join you for the World Vision 6K as well. Uh, may you know the generosity of God. May you run away from any hollow or deceptive philosophy which has convinced you of the scarcity of God, which has told you to jump through hoops to get to a God who has already given God's self to you. May you know the presence of God in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. May you know the presence of God in your life. And may you find the true and transformational holiness which is waiting for you when you discover that your life is a venue for the life of God. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.